This is Scott Coogan from the H. Philly Band and Mob. Listen to Iron City Rocks with John. Hey, what's up, everybody out there in Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh land? This is your homeboy, CJ Snare from Firehouse. You are in the right spot, man. Keep it tuned in, keep it locked, and turn it up loud. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. Tons of stuff to talk to you about, John, and I'm really happy to be here. So. Hello and welcome to episode 110 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I am your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast is a podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. Episode 110, we've got three special guests. We've got from the Ace Fraley Band, we've got Scott Coogan, drummer extraordinaire, who is also a drummer for the Lynch Mob currently as well. Also, we've got lead singer and uh, songwriter for the band Firehouse, CJ Snare, will be joining us on the show. And also from Les Zeppelin, the um, female tribute band to Led Zeppelin, we have Steph Paynes joining us as well. So what we're going to do, we're going to get into a tracks first from a band called Dead Sarah. They're from Los Angeles. You can find more information about them at www.deadsarah.com. This is a song called We Are What You Say. Then we're going to get into the interview with Scott.
heard again that was Dead Sarah with We Are What You Say. Next up on the show, we've got drummer Scott Coogan. Scott has been in several projects, including Nikki Six's band The Brides of Destruction. He has also played with George Lynch in The Lynch Mob. And uh, most importantly right now, he plays with Ace Fraley. Ace will be coming in to play the Ribs on the River Festival at the Trib Total Media Amphitheater Station Square on June 17th. You can get tickets at Ticketmaster.com. Ace is going to be doing, as we talk about in the uh, interview, the entire 1978 solo album he did with Kiss, which featured uh, songs like Rip It Out, New York Groove, Fractured Mirror, and more. So uh, for those of you out there who are diehard Kiss fans like myself, that's a can't-miss show. So without further ado, we're going to play a song from Anomaly, which features Scott Coogan on drums. This is Ace Fraley with Sister. When 
I'm from Chicago, Illinois, um, huh? Arlington Heights, Illinois, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, I came out to Los Angeles when I was 19, went to MI, to Musicians, it's hard to say, Musicians Institute. Yeah. Right? Now, did you, were you a pretty proficient player when you moved west at the time? Yes. I. Oh, yeah. I've been playing... I, when I was three years old, I started beating on things with, like, Barbie legs and number two pencils. <laughs> so. <laughs> but the thing is, John, that um, I actually, like, in Chicago, I didn't get into the scene. I didn't really play the clubs a lot. Okay. Um, I played the Thirsty Whale a couple times, you know, but um, I just jammed in my basement, you know, with, with really good players. Uh, John Monaco. I don't okay. know who John Monaco is. No, it's not ringing a bell. Guitar player, great guitar player. He was uh, he played with Enough's Enough and okay. you know the Chicago Boys as well, um, but they're from the South Side. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I came out here when I was twenty, and um, and what did I do after that? Yeah, what kind of guys? How did you um, get your kind of professional break after you went to school? Like <laughs> after school, uh, to answer your question, yes, I was very. Um, I did marching band, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, you know, I, I read music and, you know, I, I tool around with my, you know, band members' guitars and stuff. So I pretty much play everything. I sing as well. Yeah. I don't know if you know that I sing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and um, my, my first thing was probably when Oni Logan and Ron Robertson saw me play at FM Station in 92. Okay. And um, that became um, a band called Violet's Demise. Okay. Um, and we were signed to Atlantic. Unfortunately, that was never released. But Yeah, 92 then, is know, kind of a, a tough year, you know, especially. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if we want to, um, you know, wear polka dots or um, a plaid. Sure, you know. A lot of flannel. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what's it called? <laughs> exactly. Um, but, um, yeah, and then what happened after that? Um, what happened after that? Back and forth to Chicago. Um, hmm? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Thanks, Trace. Yeah, I was actually in a boy band, John. Oh, hey, tell us about that. He goes, oh, hey, tell us about these, like, snoring. Tell us about that. <laughs> no, actually, that, that sounds like it could be an interesting story. John, listen, I swear by the moon and the stars and the sky, I'll be there. Do you know which one that is? No, I have to admit, I, no, I, I'm not. like that? Yeah. Anyway, it's a rumor, though, because there's no video and there are no pictures, so it's a rumor. Um, and I did play with Vanilla Ice as well. Um, I'm just dropping it all out. No, you I mean, that, that, you yeah. got it. Vanilla Ice, I can see. I mean, he did, uh, I, if I remember correctly, did a pretty thrashed up version of Ice Ice Baby. <laughs> Actually, I was just on your website and I saw um, the um, Sully and the boys are going to be in town. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sully, Erna did a uh, solo show, uh, would, would have been last night, and then Godsmack is coming back around in July, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. yeah, so the, what made me think of that, the drummer Shannon Larkin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shannon. <laughs> yeah. Um, he actually played on the Vanilla Ice record. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, he's a he's an amazing drummer, isn't he? 
Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, Sully's no slouch on drums either, so that's a... You know what? I've heard that, and they do, like, kind of like a little solo thing, right? They do, like, the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you get a chance, I think one of their DVDs, they actually do kind of a drum-off to Moby Dick yeah. uh, as a solo, and it's, you know, it's got all the big lights and everything. It's real arena rock-ish, and it's, it's, it's really cool. Doesn't the, guitar pl- doesn't the guitar player play as well, or no? Oh, no, I'm thinking of the... Um, um, I'm thinking of uh, um, with the bass player from Alice Cooper and um, Gary Kelly with uh, Eric Singer. Um, anyway, yeah, Sully's, Sully's great. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, anyway, back to Bill Eyes. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was actually a really cool dude. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it was unfortunate because he kind of got stereotyped. I think any time a person has a hit that's that iconic, um you're kind of stuck. You, you you get a label, and that's who you are. You know, it's like absolutely. You know. Or a hit from Todd Bridges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sightless. Yeah, one notoriety to the other. Yeah. Hey. Oh, so then I'm just gonna bore the crap out of you. No problem. So then we move on to <laughs> this is probably the coolest thing. Do you know um, who Rusty Anderson is? Are you? Do you play guitar? What do you play? Yeah, I, I do play guitar. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. Um, not any kind of professional. Certainly. Can we not Rusty? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just funny. I'm here with Tracy, and she's like, you know, you know, I, I have had kind of a, um, what's it called? A, um, a, play, a, yeah, a career of playing with some pretty good guitar players. Sure. You know? Yeah. It's, you know, even, even, you know, some of your more recent, you know, things. You've worked right. with a lot of greats. Now, do you have to, like, when you're playing with these different kinds of things, do you adapt your style, or you just kind of bring bring the Scott sound to a band? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> well, I don't practice, so it's, uh, my drumming style is is not super technical. Mm-hmm. Um, it's feel, okay. you know what I mean? Um, that's the most important thing to me, and that's what I... Um, I'm known for, I think, you know, mm-hmm. and from what I hear, that's what Eric Dover says anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, oh, and, and Chip Zanoff says that I have a, a really good pocket and I have good pipes and I bring life to the party. But, um, um, but it's, a yeah, to me, it's, it's about your feel like, you know, like, like Bonzo, you know, mm-hmm. it's a, it's not about, it's, it's about, not being so technical, but doing the right thing at the right time. And that can apply to anything, really. And I think, you know, as a musician, your personality comes out in your instrument. Do you agree, John? Yeah, you know, when you were saying that, I was thinking of a lot of what I would consider uh, either death or or thrash metal today, where you sometimes you listen to it, and it's almost like an assault on your ear when you hear the drums, and there's no space anymore. And when you mentioned Bonzo, it really made me think about how much, you know, when you listen to a Led Zeppelin song, you feel the drums and you can feel that groove. But when you're listening to blast beats at, you know, 160 beats per minute, it kind of is a more of an assault on your head. And, you know, I miss guys yeah. like Bonzo. But but that's great for, for, for what that is, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I play drums in OTAP, and, you know, but so that, that wasn't like blast beat. You know who told me what a blast beat was? Ginger from the Wild Hearts. Yeah, I had to look it up. That's a great guitar player, huh? I had to look that one up myself. I had heard that term so many times. I don't know exactly what that term means. I'm not a drummer. I don't pretend to be a drummer. 
country is, is like is like when you just play the ride symbol and the snare as fast as you can, like seals are like. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not even cool. It's not even like Dave Lombardo. It's not, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. And but, um, Otep was very difficult. Yeah. That was yeah. that wasn't like speed metal. Do you have you heard of Otep? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. Um, that was very difficult. I had to learn. The, I had two rehearsals and then did Ozfest in Donington. Um, two days later, and it was like it's so syncopated and like, you know, it's very difficult. But yeah, that's I pulled be. it off. Yeah, I had one train wreck, but trial by fire there. Geez. Trial by fire, good maiden tune. Yeah. Um, is, there ba- <laughs> is there a bad maiden tune though? Let's be honest. <laughs> is there a bad maiden tune? Well, um, let's not talk about hmm, time. There is what? Let's not talk about. <laughs> don't throw Blaze Bailey under the bus. <laughs> so where were we? Um, um I, you had uh you had been with Vanilla Ice and then uh you mentioned Otep. Um I know you, you were uh, uh integral part of the Brides of Destruction. Um yes. how did how did you get involved in that? I mean, because that was you were in a band with some pretty heavy hitters there. Um <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, one of probably one of the biggest hitters in the industry. Um you know. To me, that was huge, John. Like, to, <laughs> like, a, I was in a band with Nikki Six. That's really weird. Yeah, there you is. know, like I, yeah, I was like, when I speak of John Bonham, right? I would get off the bus when I get off from school, and I would put my headphones on and I would play two Zeppelin songs, mm-hmm. and I would also play to like, like Tommy was a huge influence, you know, of, you know. And to then, like, it hit me when I was playing um, in Anaheim at the House of Blues, playing Shout the Devil. I looked over, I was like, I'm playing Shout the Devil with Nikki Six. You know, yeah. It's pretty strange. Yeah, I mean, um, I... Anyway, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, as, as a guy, I know you you and I are very close in age, and uh, I know how influential, you know, I remember to this day, the first time I saw them kind of round the bend in the Looks to Kill video, you're like, whoa, this kind of changes the game. You know, it was Absolutely. pretty, you know, a lot of people talk about, obviously, Metallica and their influence in the 80s and things like that. But I have to put Shout at the Devil as one of the most important records of that decade. Uh, and there you are. You know, you're in a band with not only him, but you've got Tracy Guns, um, you know, who is another, you know, pioneer in that kind of era of music as well. Um, and you guys made a phenomenal record. Um, so how did... What's too fast for love, John? Yeah, you know, I was a little bit, uh, I think you're about a year older than me, if I'm not mistaken, and I remember... Are you 27? I wish, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's go with that, yeah, 27. Yeah, we, we both grew up right about the time Generation Swine came out. <laughs> exactly, is that the one where they were the pig masks? If I'm not mistaken, yes, yeah, I believe so. Okay, cool. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like, and, and I think a lot of people maybe don't, who don't really get into reading the liner notes and don't realize, I mean, Nikki Six is Motley Crue. I mean, you can, you put Vince Neil as the face of Motley Crue and Tommy Lee is kind of the character of Motley Crue, but, but Nikki, Nikki is the guy writing all the songs. All those classic tracks are Nikki Six. Um, you know, so that had to be mind blowing. And, and that isn't even maybe the, isn't even maybe the biggest, that isn't even the biggest guy you've played with in your career, maybe. So, 
Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he he's a, he's a very good friend of mine. He's very cool. But the front line, he he's the 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 persona and the 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 the, the whole package, right? But as a songwriter, the fact that you know that he actually asked me to write with him was pretty cool. Yeah, you know, that had to be kind of a, we, yeah, yeah, a humbling um, thing. Yeah, the fact that he asked me to lead sing a song on the the, the first Brides record was pretty cool. Yeah, you know? um, yeah. I mean, because he, you know, I mean, obviously he's worked with Vince, uh, and uh, I'm trying to remember the timing of, of the Brides of Destruction as it corresponded to Motley with um, uh, the vocalist change. White and crew. Yeah, well, I was um, thinking of. Yeah. Uh, you know, when they changed vocalists, when exactly that kind of what corresponded. Now? Oh, John Karabi? Yeah, when when the John Karabi era Motley Crew and where the Brides of Destruction lined up. Were you guys pre-Karabi or post-Karabi? <laughs> Interesting. When is Hooligan's Holiday? That was like, um, that was, that was 90, that was like, was it 92? Yeah. Was it? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tracy knows her Molly. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so um, John Karabi was actually in the Brides. You know, he was in the band. Yeah. Um, did you guys do Hooligan's Holiday live? No, we never did, actually. Because okay. John, um, I don't think John ever played live with us. Okay. Um, because, yeah, he, um, it, you know, it just ended up being a four-piece. You know, sure. me and Tracy, Nikki, and, and that singer. I'm just kidding. In London. <laughs> Yeah. The uh, the John I have to say Hooligans Hall the reason I asked that question I absolutely love that song and I know when when the uh, crew went out on the road this year they they put this thing you could vote on what songs you wanted them to to play and I, I tried to write in Hooligans Holiday just to see if maybe it would stir enough uh, interest to get a few votes but I would love to hear that song live you know really did were people like yeah I imagine <laughs> I imagine most people were like what is that you know if it didn't come off the first four records probably most people didn't pay any attention. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, it's probably like like at the, in that era, like Primal Scream, like whatever. That put, yeah, I changed the yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to think of something funny to say, uh, but okay. if you think about it, <laughs> I'm gonna get techno. You know, the Hooligans Holiday that that group yeah. is pretty cool. Mm. You know, it's very cool. And Tommy had like that 32 inch kick drum and. You know, John had his, you know, lip ring, and, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, oh. Yeah, he had... I love a, John. I love him to death. Oh, he's, he's, uh, he was a guest with us last summer. I believe he was doing a tour, and it seemed like he was coming around every couple of months because he, he's kind of like a chameleon. He was in so many different projects and side <laughs> projects and stuff. Uh, you know, probably one of the, the truly most underrated guys in the business. You know, he's... There's he's, a lot of them, John. Yeah. Now, um... You ended up uh, working with the Lynch Mob, and and how did that kind of come to be? Did was there a um, did you have a connection inside the band, or did they seek you out? Actually, um, well, I told you about um, Oni Logan and yeah. Ron Robertson, yeah, mm-hmm. that band. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a long story. You don't you don't have time, John, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, in 2000, well, no, it was, that was in 94, um, after we did the Violet Demise record, which was the name of the band that Rowan and Oni and I had, um, we went up to, to 
to Phoenix, Arizona, and we recorded with George. That was the first time I met him. Okay. Um, and just after that, I was in a band called Parade of Losers, P-O-L. Okay. Yeah, you probably don't know. It's kind of like like Green Day, you know. Okay. Um, yeah, remember that song? I'm stupid. Just Tracy's favorite song. Um, it was like '95. Anyway, um, we opened up for um, for Dokken. Okay. Their, yeah, it was '95. It was like the uh, what was that called? Dysfunctional tour. Yeah, probably? yeah, the re yeah. kind of reunion, aptly titled reunion. Yeah. John, P.O.L. was a great band. We were badass. <laughs> yeah, that's uh Yeah, you stick that out. Tommy Hendrickson. Okay. Yeah. And you guys, so you were working with, um, you had kind of struck a bond with Oni Logan, and then um, did they kind of bring you into the fold just for the Smoke and Mirrors album, or had you been in the band prior to to that? Um, but, um. That's an interesting question. Um, yes. What happened was um, Marco Mendoza okay. and Tommy, right, were were part of the band. And what happened? Oh, and then the Cinderella tour got canceled, right? And so Tommy yeah. left, and it's, it's a long story. So um, there I am with Marco. Marco's awesome. So me and Marco, Oni, and George... Um and uh, jamming at Nightingale, writing songs, and we made Smoke and Mirrors at um, um, what's that studio? Uh, huh? Drum dudes. Um, Sound City. Okay. That's, that's yeah, amazing studio. Um, what's that little area off the four hundred five? The four hundred five. Now, where, um, was was Oni involved in the project from the very beginning, or did he kind of come in as the project was shaping uh, up? He's just calling in. Um, um, Oni was actually not. Um, he wasn't. Uh, he was in Switzerland. Switzerland, yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty difficult because we were sending tracks, you know, to him, and he was. Okay. Yeah. And that's the cool thing about this new thing that we're doing. Um, it's not Marco. It's Robbie Rosa. Uh, Robbie, Robbie Rosa. Why do I keep saying Robbie Rosa? Robbie Crane? Robbie Crane. <laughs> and um, and Oni's here. It's, it makes such a huge difference because Oni, he's so um, – his energy is amazing. You know, and, like, yeah. he, he – he he's the he's the director, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He um yeah and um he used to say one thing like change one thing that you know, play this on the bass and it makes all the difference in the world. Whereas before, um it was just the three of us, you know, um just jamming without Oni. You know? Yeah, it's probably good. I to love get... that guy. Yeah, it's <laughs> phenomenal. I mean you that record, um you know, really jumped off the page. We talked to him. Um, you guys actually had come through Pittsburgh, I believe it was. Well, did you tour with the Lynch Mob on that album? You actually, did you do the uh, the tour? Um, I I don't know. Okay, I didn't actually, I I did some local shows. Okay, I know they came through with um Michael Schenker group last yeah. summer, and we talked to Oni. And yeah, I I really spent a lot of time with that album. I was like, this has got to be the best, you know brand of lynch mob um really since the first record 
you know. I, That's awesome. That I, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. I, I, I'm very proud of it. Yeah, it's personally. Yeah, that was that was a good one. And you guys, you said you're you're writing now. Is there any time frame on a new record? Um, it's interesting. We're gonna tour in August. Um, we're actually going to the studio um, next week. Oh, this week actually on Wednesday okay. we're gonna cut two or three songs. Okay. Um, and um, so yeah, we're just gonna kind of chip away at it, you know. And yeah. um, and uh, yeah, probably end of August. Okay. You know, hopefully. Now, yeah. when you when you play with George versus um, you know you're gonna be coming into Pittsburgh uh, specifically to play with Ace Frehley, um, do you? Play different for the two, or I mean, is there anything you do stylistically, or you just? <laughs> That's interesting. Um, yeah, George. Is, I think I played. <laughs> I've never actually thought about that. No, I'm just thinking. <laughs> you're kind of, in one respect, you're kind of, you're probably doing at least a decent amount of material from McBrown versus a lot of probably Anton Fig and Peter Chris material, and I don't think of those guys as at all similar and I'm just curious how you kind of you know fit into that space right well I, I actually was taking the question of like how I play with the you know the guitar the the, the people that they're with Ace or, or George yeah um, I mean either way they are, they are people they're very good friends of mine um, <laughs> it's interesting Ace is like uh, it, I kind of have to like kind of be his backbone in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and um, but it's just like the, I've just, I've been blessed to play with some very very talented musicians, you know. George, um, there's they're completely different animals, you know. What I mean, different. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, Ace is more of um, you know, ding 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 you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you of George, I, mean? I think of a lot of, of, like, pedal tones and, you know. Oh, absolutely. That's amazing. You totally know. George is coming in every day with new heads and pedals, yeah. like, you know, because that's what his thing is. Yeah. And, you know, Ace is, Ace is just like, you know, turn the game down and ride my solos. Yeah. You know. Less, less but, Paul and your Marshall. Right, but that's the cool thing about George is that, um, he'll do like a he'll have like a, a like a tremolo sound or and it will um, you know create a, a a song idea you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, and uh, he's just he's like a little kid you know what I mean <laughs> we're kind of the same uh, we have the same uh, sense of humor and stuff. Yeah, I mean he's he's got. I mean the one thing I will say that certainly George is is got no shortage of new material. It seems like every time you turn around, George is releasing something. Uh, <laughs> I can't get him to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, as, a, <laughs> as, a, as a fan, let him go. Yeah, I, I yeah, it's never awesome. get enough of George yeah. playing. Ace, but, on the other <laughs> hand, you know it was, you know I don't know how long it was between Anomaly and the last uh, was it Ace Fraley or Fraley's Comet record. Uh, in, yeah, what was the what was how long was that span? How long was that gap between? Oh God, that had to be decade and a half, I'd say. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing if I'm trying to remember which one was the last Fraley's comment or the live times two. Or, I, I think it might have been Trouble Walking, and then you're going, <laughs> and that's probably early '90s to 
2008 or 2009, I mean. So, yeah. yeah. Too long as a fan, I will say. Yeah. Uh, it's actually a funny story. Ace stopped us when we were rehearsing. He goes, he goes, he goes, wow, Scotty, what are you saying? He goes, he goes, what are you saying? I said, I have, I said, I have trouble walking. <laughs> he goes, it's not, I have trouble walking. I am trouble walking. But I do have trouble walking. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Yeah. Let's get that I, was all, I, was, I have trouble walking. Now, um, I, I have to ask a question there. I mean, is is it? I know you're you're probably more of a contemporary age wise with with George Lynch, but did you ever, in your wildest fantasy, say you know, even fantasize of the idea of playing behind Ace Frehley? I mean, that had to be. I actually I mean, as, was as big as playing with Nikki Six might be. I have to say that. As, as a guy, you know, roughly the same age, that would my head would explode. I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> last night I was listening to Kiss songs, um, uh-huh. and I I was like, oh my, I play with Ace Frehley, you know what I mean? But at the same time, he is one of his greatest characteristics as a human being is to make that he makes people comfortable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's such a like, such an easy person to talk to. He's such a such a great person. And um we're very, very good friends. And he, you know, he uh, you know, believes in me a lot and, you know, the fact that I you know sing Love Gun and stuff like that. He, yeah. you know, it's it's amazing. To answer your question, yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't yeah. you be? <laughs> I I, I probably be paralyzed at least <laughs> first rehearsal they have to remind me to actually pick up the sticks and uh try um as far as the live show um just to give people a, a frame of reference what i mean you mentioned singing love gun and i'm assuming you do a decent amount of tracks off anomaly uh and i heard that you guys are going to be doing the 70th solo album in its entirety is that correct yeah um actually in europe i think um it was actually um, Anthony's idea, you know, he, he said to Ace, you know, why, why don't we do the, the 78 record front to back? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, all of a sudden, you know, we're going to do it. Um, and um, it's it going to be amazing. I can't wait. <laughs> I don't yeah. know what to say to that. It's, it's going to be it's gonna be awesome. Um, and as far as, um, we don't really play that many songs off, and not only we do Pan the Neck, you know, Sister, which is the song that I play drums on, on the, it's the only song that I play drums on the record. Okay. Um, the rest of the drum tracks are done by um, Anton Fig. Okay. And um, the, as far as, is there much in the way of Fraley's Comet stuff? Um, we used to do more of the Fraley's Comet stuff. Mean, of course, we do Rock Soldiers. Okay. You know? Yeah. That's got to be fun for you to play that one. That's, that's a. It's fun, yeah. That's, that's a that's a good snare drum song there. Uh, yeah. That's you, that's a, I, yeah, I get into my uh, marching band roots for that I one. I say, I could, yeah, <laughs> strap on the snare drum and come across stage on that one. But I mean, yeah, I, and, yeah, and I actually used to sing "Breakout," believe it or not. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that one's pretty up there. That vocally, yeah, that, I remember. Um, you know, listen back to that record. Who I, sang that? Was it John Regan, if or Todd no, Todd Ace. Howard? I can't remember. Howard. Yeah. Um, but H would always be like, I don't know how you play that offbeat, sing on the bell of a ride, and sing it at the same time. 
what yeah. I get paid big bucks for. Exactly. Yeah, that's 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 your niche there. Scotty, you're cracking up. <laughs> well, Scott, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule, I, you know, and also for getting up so early in the morning to come on with us. Thank you, John. All right, man. Best of luck to you down the road. Take care. Okay.
All right, from the album Smoke and Mirrors, that was Scott Coogan on drums with the Lynch Mob with a track called Lucky Man. If you're a fan of the Dokken or the Lynch Mob at any point in time, uh, Smoke and Mirrors is a great album. I believe it came out 2010 or thereabouts. Um, you can certainly get it on Amazon or iTunes or, or wherever. Uh, a really a great, uh, great, great album. Uh, Oni Logan uh, back on vocals who sang on the Wicked Sensation album. So if you're a fan of that uh, genre of Lynch Mob uh good good one to get he's going to be in town scott coogan is with ace fraley on the 17th of june at the trib total media amphitheater uh you want to get your tickets at ticketmaster.com also coming to the region uh firehouse uh who had some phenomenal chart success in the early 1990s they're going to be playing the altoona railroaders museum on june 24th you can get tickets up there i believe they're only like 10 bucks in advance 15 bucks at the door so if you're looking for a little bit of a road trip, uh, many of you in the Pittsburgh area, that's, what, an hour or two hours at the most, depending on where you are in Pittsburgh. So get in the car, head out for a night of great rock and roll. Uh, he's got a new project, CJ does, uh, called Rubicon Cross. We're going to talk quite a bit about that, also about his uh, musical production background, and also what's going on with the world of Firehouse. So to give you a little uh, walk down memory lane, here's a little bit of All She Wrote. <laughs> Without further ado, I welcome to the show from the band Firehouse, CJ Snare. How are you doing today, CJ? John, I'm really, really excited to be here, excited to talk to you, and I want to say hi to all the listeners out there and or to anyone who uh, is reading this uh, yeah. exciting interview here. Yeah, well, we appreciate it. Can you um, take us back? You're originally from the, the D.C. area, correctly? Is that where you grew up? Well, you know, I, I uh, have hung my hat in many places. Okay. I was born in Washington, D.C., okay. but I did my primary school years in Pennsylvania. Oh, in okay. Haven, actually, okay. So uh, which you're... is between Williamsport and uh, uh, State College, so central okay. Pennsylvania. Yeah. And the day I graduated high school, I was like, all right, I'm out of here, and I moved to Florida. Okay. And I was there until a few years in South Carolina, where I met uh, the original Firehouse bass player, Terry Richardson. Okay. And uh, then moved to North Carolina, and then my whole family migrated from Pennsylvania down to Florida. Florida is where I call home, although I don't live there now. Right. <laughs> I met a gal from Wisconsin, and I just moved to Wisconsin uh, a few years ago, living in Milwaukee. Boy, the winters are a drastic change from Tampa, Florida. Yeah, I was just, at least you got a little bit of custom in central PA. I mean, it's certainly uh, Milwaukee Park. We're not Wisconsin, though. I mean, that, that's you're going from one extreme to the other there with uh, Florida to Wisconsin. So you, um, the band got started. Uh, you guys were based out of uh, Charlotte when, when Firehouse kind of started to gain momentum, correct? That's right. Okay. Yeah, I was living in Charlotte 
and uh, Bill and Michael were living in Richmond, Virginia. Okay. And uh, I was in a band called Max Warrior, which had disbanded. It was a, a cover band, but we did a lot of original stuff, too, which was uh, very heavy metal. I mean, for the day, yeah. we uh, used to cover a lot of Priests and Scorpions and Iron Maiden and stuff like that. So it kind of cut my teeth, mm-hmm. that sort of music. And then we wrote uh, songs in that vein as well. And I started, uh, I met with Bill. And he approached me, and uh, I was looking to put a new band together, and so was he. And he had a band called White Heat. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started writing together, and we had a chemistry. And, uh, you know, he had Michael Foster in his pocket already, which was part of White Heat. And then I brought Perry into the picture, and that's kind of how Firehouse got. Everyone migrated to the Charlotte, North Carolina area as a central hub, Perry being from South Carolina. Right. He living in North Carolina those guys being in Virginia. It was like the best place to meet in the middle. That's where we got signed by Epic Records. Now, before before Epic, were there a lot of... Um, did you guys gig for a long time in the in that area of the country? Or- well, you know, we did all kinds of oddball jobs, whatever it took, to keep the music going. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were career musicians, you know. That's what we had set out to do. It's like, this is what we want to do, and we want to perpetuate a career with this kind of thing. Huh. But... Uh, you know, in order to do that, you have to make some sacrifices. So I remember uh, Bill and Michael working, like, at a sandwich shop or something. And yeah. I was moving furniture part-time. And also, uh, you know, like, I'd get the seasonal gigs, like, in the clothing stores and the malls, and I'd be steaming the clothes, coming out and putting security devices on it. But we were making music mm-hmm. because we were playing five nights a week at a lounge okay. at a Quality Inn where uh, actually, you know, I had written Love of a Lifetime long before Firehouse ever got uh, started or even existed. And we used to play that and pack the dance floors out with that and everything. (laughs) It was kind of funny. So we were doing all these odd jobs and this musical job with kind of in a lounge band. You know, it was really funny because we all had the hair back then, too. And in the interim, we were writing uh, the music, which was to become... The first Firehouse CD. Now, when you were doing the uh, playing in, in the clubs and stuff like that, I mean, you guys um, kind of came into the what a lot of people kind of tag the hair metal scene. You guys kind of came in a little bit later in the genre. Were you guys covering a lot of what ended up becoming your peers at that time, or were you guys is that kind of what your repertoire of your set was, or were you guys mostly original? No, when uh, when White Heat. Uh, which was the the forerunner for Firehouse, began. As I said, we were playing in lounge bands, doing odd jobs. White Heat was an exclusively original band, or Firehouse. Okay. It was an exclusively original. And we started getting uh, a lot of airplay locally in Charlotte, North Carolina. Actually, that's what really, I think, got the attention of the record labels at that time. Also, we were packing the places that we were playing. So not only were we doing all those things I mentioned before, but we were also doing the early firehouse dates as well. Okay. Selling out the venues. Okay. And then you guys, um, how long would you say you guys were, were a unit uh, before Epic came along? Well, you know, I think we got started in uh, late 87. And so, uh, you know, people always go, oh, 80s, man, I love you guys, I love 80s metal. <laughs> It's like, well, thank you very much. We, late 87, Bill and I started writing together. In 88, uh, you know, we were performing. Uh, we sh- were showcasing in 1989 when we got signed. Mm-hmm. And 
we recorded our first record in 1990, and it was released September 11th of 1990. Okay. So technically, for all extents and purposes, we could consider you a grunge band. I guess you guys were just a, just over the wire in the 1990. Now, it wasn't a grunge band. Well, you said that you know we're we fall into that category, and we were at the tail end. I think we were the very end. Yeah, the last band to really have international success from that genre. You know, it's yeah. kind of we talk about it when we're uh, flying together on an airplane or something. Man, if we had just gotten started like a year or two earlier. Yeah. You know, because we were set, actually, when the, you know, the grunge scene kind of shifted the gears of the whole music industry. Uh, it was our turn to then start really headlining yeah. arenas like that. Because we had done the tours with uh, Warrant and Trickster was our first. Sure. Now, that was our big summer. And then we did Tesla for a year. We did the Poison and Damn Yankees. And it was coming up for us. Yeah. You know, and that's when, as I said, things... Uh, the tide turned. Yeah, oh. if, if it makes you feel any better, you're not alone. I, I had a conversation with Red Beach not all that long ago, and he said almost the exact same thing, and I think they were a year earlier than you, but he said, you know, if we'd just done this a little bit earlier, we'd all be living in mansions, and, you know, but it, if you'd gotten there just around 1986, you know, you were golden. But having said that, I mean, you guys still had remarkable, you know, not only chart success, but even, you know, your your entire catalog as far as kind of gross sales is still very impressive. I mean, considering, you know, I mean, if you you told me right now that you could have a band that would start today and sell 9, 10 million albums, you know, that would catch a lot of people's attention. You know, where you guys, you flew kind of under, under the radar. I mean, you weren't the prevailing wind in 1992 and 1993, but you were certainly, you know, mining your share of gold. It's not in the United States, but worldwide. Um, do you yeah, have it? You know, we were fortunate that even though we did get, uh, you know, the early nod in our career from the United States, and we were all over the radio and MTV, and we won the American Music Award in 1991 against, uh, this is funny too, ties in, against Alice in Chains and Nirvana, mm-hmm. the best new hard rock heavy metal band. Uh, Slaughter had handed us the trophy because they had been the winners the year before that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, it was it was really funny. That's when things began to shift. But we were fortunate enough that the audience around the world had embraced us and sustained us through the few years. It was only a few years that were kind of lean when it was just like totally uncool yeah. to be that melodic hard rock band. And then I think, uh, you know, people woke up. They didn't want to be force-fed necessarily just what the radio stations or the video stations played. And they said, you know what? I liked that music. Yeah. You know, and it came back around. Yeah, and that's that's exactly true. I, I know, and I will fully admit, I was in college in the in the years when you guys kind of peaked, and I almost quit listening to current music during that period of time because the tide had shifted so far away from the kind of music I grew up listening to. And, you know, I don't even want to say fun, but, but I mean, there was a lot more fun in late 80s, early 90s versus mid-90s music, and... You know, I just got away from music altogether, and now I think a lot of you guys are almost gaining more momentum now. You know, you look at bands like, you know, Striper, for example, probably as big now as they've ever been. You know, enjoying great success coming back around. So, oh, yeah. the um, talk a little bit. You guys have got an album coming out later this year, I believe, or, or very soon, Full Circle. Is that available yet, or, or when will that? 
That is happening right now. It just dropped June 1st. Okay. And uh, you can get it at our shows. You can get it at our website, which is firehousemusic.com. Uh, you can get it at iTunes, you know, and all Amazon.com, MP3s, you know, just all the, the usual suspects for digital download. Okay. And it's something that we're really, really proud of because, uh, John, I'll tell you, it's uh, it, this is our answer to what fans have been requesting for, gosh, at least the last decade. Um, you know, we as I said, we got started in 1990. September 11th, 1990 was the launch of our first CD. And we had eight studio CDs up to that point. And we even had a hit, a top 30 hit, a top 25 hit in the United States, which kind of caught the industry with their pants down. Mm-hmm. It was a song called I Live My Life For You yeah. in 1995 when none of the quote-unquote hair bands were doing any radio or anything. We were actually on the Billboard charts winning uh, pop songwriting awards. And, you know, that thing took off all over the world for us, too. It's wild. You can go to Brazil or Korea. We played to 20,000 people headlining in Korea last year, 10,000 in Singapore headlining last year. Can't carry a conversation with these people because they speak different languages. Sure. And they'll sing these songs to us. So that's amazing. And what we've found through the last decade or so is that our fans from around the world have said, where can we get all the music, all the hits on one CD? Now, Sony had done re-records, or not re-records, they had taken, you know, stuff from this record and that record and done compilations. Okay. And the money went right to Sony and we didn't even sanction it. We didn't choose the songs. There were always oddball tracks on there that we'd be like, what were they thinking? Yeah. You know, so everyone was asking for this. They were demanding it. And I don't want anyone out there to think that we're not creating new music or that we're selling out or whatever. But as we move into our third decade, because we are celebrating our 20th anniversary this year, we thought, you know what, let's get back in the studio. Let's re-record what fans have requested and band favorites throughout the last two decades and put it on. That's why we call the CD Full Circle. Because we got back in there. Let's show them we can still bring it. We're still in the same key, the same tuning. This is what we sound like now. And this will come to the band. So we sell it at the shows. And that just started, obviously, with June 1st being the release date. And we've already seen an over overwhelming response. There are some haters out there who are going, Man, why did you get a re-record? We don't need that crap. You know, it's like... Our fans, our hardcore fans, have really asked for this. Now, bear with us. Like it if you want. Don't like it if you don't want to like it. Buy it if you want. Don't buy it if you don't want to. It's a step for us as a band that we wanted to take moving forward into uh, the third decade of our career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's a good glimpse. I mean, like you said, you know, especially with the success you guys had internationally sometimes some of the releases can be very hard to find in the united states uh, you know distribution i'm sure is not consistent all over the world um so it's a great chance for people to go out and instead of scouring used bin you know record stores to find some of the early material or some of the you know maybe mid 90s stuff here's a great way to get it all in one place without having to buy like you said the the sony and the you know the 20th century masters and stuff like that that you know, really don't maybe represent the band's opinion. So right, yeah. and there are some uh, 
let's, I don't want to say bizarre, but I'll say some some uh, deeper cuts on there. Uh, one being a song called Christmas With You. Mm-hmm. Now, that was released as a bonus track uh, in Japan. And so all over Asia, even we went uh, uh, last time to India, where we headlined for 43,000 people in a stadium, if you can believe wow, it. Wow, yeah. Support we get, you know, uh, twice. We went well, the first time in 2004, second time in 2008, and they're demanding Christmas with you, which is virtually unknown in the United States because it was a, a demo. It was uh, something that uh, Tommy Mottola, who was president of Sony Music at the time, had asked us to uh, write a song because they were going to put together a Christmas compilation record. The idea got scrapped, but we had done it at the Hit Factory in uh, New York City, and we had this demo. Well, the Japanese took that, capitalized on it, ran with it, you know, and it's like you hear Bruce Springsteen doing, when the coast is coming to town, you know, every yeah. year. And we thought, you know, we need to have our crack at it. This yeah. is a song we wrote, gosh, you know, almost 20 years ago, and let's put it on a CD where the American fans might not have heard it before. Yeah. Yeah, you know, stuff like that. That's that's what you'll find on Full Circle. Yeah, which saves you know, and, and think about it, you're 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 helping out the fan too because you've got you know, there's always the you know, kind of fanatic fan who wants to have everything you've ever done, who's maybe tra- tracking down you know a very pricey import. Now they can get their hands on that. Now, what you mentioned one thing that really caught my attention uh, in there when you said about singing the songs in the same key because obviously your songs are not. Uh, easy for the average singer. Is there something you do in particular to keep your voice um, kind of in the shape it was 20 years ago? I mean, that's not an easy feat. Easy feat. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I, as I said to you earlier in the conversation, uh, one of the things that I think has contributed to the longevity of the career of this rock band Firehouse is uh, we were all on the same page as far as making this a career thing, not a hobby thing, not a vehicle necessarily to party or get laid, even though, you know, that's certainly a pleasant byproduct, especially when you're starting out and Mm -hmm. everything. But uh, I can tell you this as a singer, during that time, uh, especially at the height of our career here in the United States, I wasn't drinking. Boring, it may sound. I wasn't doing any drugs, you know. But it was to me, it was about, you know what, next Night's audience wants me to sound like the CD. Mm-hmm. The other guys are like that, too. You know, our original bass player, Perry, not a drop of alcohol at one point in the career. You know, I, I mean, not that that's what it is. I think some of it's genetic. Mm-hmm. Some of it's training. I was trained classically and did a lot of stuff in choirs and things like that. Okay. I even made it, by the way, I even made it to first chair, tenor one in the Pennsylvania State Chorus. There you go. So, yeah, you're learning proper breathing exercises and things like that instead of just wailing away with kind of reckless abandon. Right, and, you know, knowing how to use your instrument properly. And then years and years of cutting your teeth and practicing it in the bars with cover tunes, playing those four 45-minute sets or three one-hour sets, you know, and doing that over and over and over again. You learn how to endure. So, really, I mean, I've been doing it 30 years, you know, 20 with Firehouse. And uh, also just... Now, don't get me wrong. I'll sit down and have a beer with you, but not prior to the show or not if I have a show the next night. I call that a school night. You know, okay. Things have changed now. It's relaxed a little bit. But uh, I think that's because it didn't have such a hard party lifestyle and it wasn't mainline and heroin or anything like that. Sure. That certainly didn't hurt. Yeah, now, you've, you've also kind of uh, 
gone into recording and, and production and engineering and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about some of your non-Firehouse projects? Well, yeah. You know, um, I had always wanted to, at, at points through our career, I had been asked, you know, um, hey, CJ, we want a, a solo record from you. When are you going to do something, you know? And uh, my answer at the, the early days was that I'm able to fulfill, you know, all my musical needs and my outlets uh, through Firehouse. And at that time, that was a very true statement. But, uh, you know, as we progressed as a band and as we also progressed as artists, you know, we found different directions musically, too, that didn't necessarily fit within the Firehouse parameter. Sure. And um, so that statement that I had made back then was no longer true. And I hooked up with a guitar player that I had another great chemistry with, just like I had had with Bill Leverty, you know, back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s and through our career. Uh, and his name's Chris Green. And he's a guitarist from the UK. Uh, he's from Brighton, England, which is just a little south of, or Burgess Hill, just a little south of London, maybe 12 miles or something. So you could say London. But, you know, we met when uh, they were supporting us on a tour, supporting Firehouse in uh, 2003, late 2003. And we started writing. And we loved the material. And, uh, you know, with 4,000 miles in between us, it took a long time. I mean, and also marriages and divorces and births and all kinds of things like that. But we continued to write despite the difference, uh, you know, with the, the miles, the distance between us. And um, we have, gosh, I don't know, 40, 50 songs that we had written. And we have a whole album, entire album written and in the can. And we thought, you know what? We want to be serious about this. We want to get another record deal. We're hungry. I'm hungry. It's not that I would ever detract from the mothership. This is not a selfish thing. This is actually an artistic expression. I have a heavier side to me. And I think over the years, Firehouse, you know, we started out as a hard rock, heavy metal band. We still have those elements to us. And when you come to see our show, you're certainly going to see that. But I'm a bit metalish, you know, I, mm -hmm. and uh, I like that. And I also have that, that ballad side to me, too, and everything in between. So Chris and I have sat down to express that. And I, I'm sorry to be rambling on, but it's quite oh, a long story, actually. Um, so we came to this Rubicon Cross idea, and we just released a couple of weeks, oddly enough, uh, right before the Firehouse CD, a limited edition EP. Now, once again, uh, you can go to our website, which is rubiconcross.net. And for those of you who don't know, it's uh, R-U-B-I-C-O-N, Rubicon, C-R-O-S-S, cross.net, Rubicon Cross. And uh, the CDs are available there, and you can also get it, of course, at the usual suspects once again, iTunes, Amazon.com. It's all over the place. The reason for doing this? We want a deal. We want a record deal. Good old-fashioned company behind us, pushing it. I mean, I know there are different ways to promote music these days. Yeah. But I think if you want global domination, if you want another success outside, that's probably the easiest, although maybe not the most lucrative at first way to do it. Right. Yeah, to find that combination of record deal and one that will push an album 
that's that's the uh, the trick. Right, and we're pushing it ourselves, but you know we're uh, one of the reasons we're talking right now is so that I can let people know about the new firehouse, and so that I can let people know about the new Rubicon Cross. I'm trying to um, generate interest with listeners out there. Uh, to try and get them to it's it's a really it's inexpensive because it's only four songs mm-hmm. but it's a good cross section of course it's not our four aces i'll tell you that right we have some aces kept behind which would be on the uh, actual full recording but we want to do it in a big big way you know certainly i don't see why that doesn't make sense why you wouldn't knock on all the big doors first mm-hmm. yeah and the response that we're getting so far, and I don't know if you've read any reviews or seen it, you know, some of the, it's starting to surface now. One of the most valuable things I'm finding is that Firehouse is considered classic rock. Firehouse is considered melodic hard rock. Firehouse is considered a hair band. Rubicon Cross, my side project with Chris Green, is being classified across the board as modern hard rock yeah. and that's invaluable because it's actually plucked me out of a genre that I'm associated with and just kind of slam me down into something new and modern which appeals to a different audience and the same old audience at the same time that's kind of what we wanted to do we wanted to do something that was a part and different from Firehouse, but something that Firehouse fans would still embrace, and people who might not like Firehouse would embrace too. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. I mean, you're keeping keeping the music relevant uh, to maybe different genres. Have Have you guys toured with the idea of maybe Rubicon Cross doing some support for Firehouse? No, and I'll tell you why. You know, even like uh, you know, with Hair Metal Mansion, it's mm-hmm. like okay, the name kind of puts us in this category. Sure. And, you know, uh, the the places that are reviewing us and the genre that they're placing us in and the reviews that we're getting are kind of separating us from that. Mm -hmm. But we want to still cross over and reach out to the fans of uh, that sort of genre saying, hey, take a taste of this. You know, try it out. You know, if you don't like it, that's fine. But if you do like it, I think you will. Because yeah. it, it bridges the gap between the old and the new. Sure. And that's what Rubicon Cross is about. A lot of people have asked us to, how'd you come up with the name, Rubicon Cross? You know, and, yeah. uh, well, crossing the Rubicon is like a, an expression. Okay. It's a metaphor uh, for past the point of no return. Okay. There's, sorry? I said, okay, yeah, that's it's interesting uh kind of uh, symbolic type of name there and and it really it's got a cool ring to it too i got to say yeah there's there's no turning back and it comes from uh it's a river the rubicon river was a, a river it is a river in northern italy and when julius caesar crossed it in his war campaign to uh become you know the emperor of rome he crossed the rubicon and so it became associated way, I mean, that's thousands of years ago. It's an English metaphor for once you've gone there, there's no turning back. You've passed the point of no return. And so that didn't sound as good. We're going to call the band Crossing the Rubicon. You know, so we turned it into Rubicon Cross. I don't know if you've seen the graphics or the symbology <laughs> that you can put with that, but it's really cool. Yeah, it is very striking visually. 
um, as well, and it gives you a kind of a, you know, you see an image like that and you get an idea of, uh, you know, in a way it kind of sets the mood for what you're going to hear, which is good. You know, it's, it's got... heavier. Have it's, you heard it? I have not had a chance to hear all of it yet. Uh, I've just uh, listened to a little bit on the uh, widget on your homepage. Uh, thus far, I haven't had a chance to get my hands on it. But, you know, when you look at that logo, it's got kind of a Celtic look to it. And it, to me, it almost conjured up kind of a Black Sabbath sort of uh, imagery to it. So it's kind of a neat thing. Well, it, it is a bit Celtic, but then, you know, the, the wings coming off the cross signify one of the, uh, well, actually the crest of the Roman Empire and Julius Caesar was eagle wings, and they'd fly that high when they were going into battle. So it kind of has that, too. And if you've listened to the sound clips, you'll hear that the guitars are much more like Black Sabbath. They're, yeah. they're blazing heavy, heavy guitars. Uh, and my vocal approach is more gruff and, and different than it would be with Firehouse. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a heavier, as I say, modern hard rock project. Yeah, and that's, that's always good. I mean, it's, it's good to have outlets to do things kind of different as opposed to, like you mentioned, the mothership of Firehouse. It's good in a way that you've got kind of an outlet to do something that's maybe a little bit different. Uh, I know Bill, from talking to him, has got uh, you know his Deep South album, which is certainly not what you would expect to hear in a Firehouse song as well. So you guys have these kind of outlets, to, but you still manage to keep Firehouse kind of what people expect instead of taking it into a completely different, you know, direction that may alienate fans. Yeah, John, yeah. when you hear mine, I mean, you listen to the snippets, you can hear that it's still within the rock vein. Sure. You know? uh, and then you asked me about production, and so uh, we had a gentleman mix this named Rick Beato, and he lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and this is another part of Chris and, and my uh, plan, if you will, to try and make it different from Firehouse and, and bring us into, uh, you know, 2011, 2012, moving forward. Um, Rick has uh, produced and mixed for Bullet For My Valentine and Dark New Day. He's done Shine Down, mm-hmm. Seven Dust, uh, Submersed, really heavy, you know. And then he's done Christian bands that are huge, too, like Need To Breathe. He's in the studio with them right now. And The Third Day. Jeez, The Third Day. I've never heard of them, but... Have you? No, that this is not ring a bell. Dude, they've sold more records than Firehouse. I mean, they're like 10, 12 million records, I don't know, and they, you know, that's all within a Christian era or something. But this guy, like, a, you probably know a bullet for my Valentine's Day. Sure. Everybody's got to shine down. He did yeah. a Vince Neil record, too. So, I mean, you know, we, we, we got this guy, and uh, he helped us with that. But uh, most of the tracking was done here at my studio's. And, uh, you know, I hooked up with this guy named Justin Murr who does this project called Liberty and Justice. Have you ever heard of that? No, that does not ring a bell. Okay, well, let me tell you about Liberty and Justice. Justin Murr, M-U-R-R, is a mastermind of creating sort of like, uh, you know, those real popular compilation records that are always at the top of the Billboard charts, like yeah. now, 23, yeah. now, 35, you know? Yeah. Okay, and it brings in a bunch of different artists doing, you know, their hit songs or, like, Christmas songs or whatever. Okay, but Justin has done uh, the record that I'm mixing for him right now. Uh, it's called The Cigar Chronicles. It'll be out at the beginning of next year. 
and I have a full-blown studio, and they chose me out of, and I'm very honored, out of so many candidates to actually mix this because they like the sounds that I create with my technical knowledge here in the studio. And uh, let's see, I have Tony Harnell, and there's a cover side of the record. Everything's rocked up. I have Tony Harnell with uh, Alex DeGrassi. Tony Arnell from TNT, Alex DeGrassi from uh, Choir Riot fame, mm-hmm. uh, playing together on this rocked-up version of Iris. Super okay. heavy. Okay. I have Kip Winger singing uh, uh, Stayin' Alive, which is a stripped-down version just with acoustic guitar. And Well, that's, that's, my- that conjures up an image in my head just hearing that. I can actually look forward to hear that. I'm singing you too, Pride in the Name of Love, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to get George Lynch to uh, do guitars on that, and Jeff Pilson on the bass. Oh, there's a, a welcome combination. Yeah, so it, it's that kind of thing. Let's see. Um, I don't know if you know Kelly Keeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sang with Baton Rouge. He also sang with George Lynch. He is. Uh, doing YMCA, but it's YMCA that is like Metallica. It sounds so heavy, and we have Neil Zaza playing the guitar solo on that. Yeah. You know, it, we have uh, Ice Ice Baby with Tertia singing. We've got a guy from The Offspring. His name's Andrew, can't think of his last name right now. I just mixed it. He's doing Manila, Manili, what do you call it? Manili, Manili. Manili. Or vanilla, yeah, sorry. I should have had the tape running. I could have just lip-synced that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's doing that song, the guy from The Offspring. But it's not what you think. Strike it from your mind that it even sounds like the original. It's a rock and roll, crunchy, aggressive guitar record. And and that's what I'm working on, too. Now that Rubicon Cross is actively pursuing the deal, now that Firehouse is out and touring and we have our full circle CD that's been released. I'm sitting in my studio right now getting ready to step up to the console again and mix another track for this record. So you want to check that out too. It's called Liberty and Justice. It'll be called The Cigar Chronicles and you can probably just Google it and find out um, and listen to some of the tracks. He's had everybody on there. I mean, he's had Sebastian Bach. He's had Lou Graham. uh, He's had people from Journey. I mean... The people that he's worked with and the roster of the performers is like a veritable who's who of classic rock genre. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's got. I mean, just in the, in the, the several you mentioned there, you've got a, a veritable who's who of uh, you know musical talent. I mean, Kip Winger, enough said. You know, Ted Poley is singing on a track. Uh, we have Robert Mason who's sang on a track. Jerry Dixon from Warrant plays on a track. I mean, there's just tons of bands, and it's a lot of fun too. On the, it's this particular CD is going to be a double CD collection, half originals, half covers, and it's going to be 26 songs. So a big, big, big package due out next year. And uh, another individual, J.K. Northrup, is the one. He's the mastermind behind. Uh, uh, the arrangements of these songs and uh, engineering these songs, and he played with King Cobra. Okay. And, oh gosh, I'm trying to think. Of what, I have Eddie Ojeda playing guitar, the Twisted Sister guitars, you sure. know, on tracks. It's 
it's amazing. The uh, the lineup. Bill Liberty is playing on one of the tracks. Now, do you do you get all these guys to come to your studio, or do you do a lot of like Pro Tools and mailing or emailing big files back and forth, or how do you accomplish logistically? I mean, this is quite a lineup. Well, both uh, with. The Rubicon Cross, we actually recorded it live here in my studio. Mm-hmm. But with a project that is so uh, formidable, if you will, with the uh, you know, extreme uh, eclectic roster here, people from all over the world, uh, you'll find that a lot of uh, engineers and studios these days are actually taking the WAV files and they're being sent via the Internet and incorporated into the sessions Okay. which is, uh, you know, a large part of what we do. It's not what we do exclusively. We do actually get together on some of them, you know, but there are geographic limitations, and when those get in the way, we use the Internet. So that, in that way, it's a tremendous tool. Yeah, I was thinking, as you're, you're mentioning all these guys, I'm thinking just the logistics of trying to find holes in everyone's schedule uh, would have to be amazing. You know, you'd be working on parts of songs forever to try to get everybody together. Uh, so that's, you know, one plus for the Internet. Yeah, we actually did begin working on this about, I'm going to say, eight months ago. Okay. And actually be in the can, uh, you know, uh, by the end of this year. Okay. So okay. it'll be released early next year. So, yeah, that's quite a, you know, with 26 songs and that many artists, which too numerable to mention. Keep watching Liberty and Justice. You'll see that. And uh, once again, Justin Murr is the man behind it, and J.K. Northrup is uh, the, the engineer, and he's uh, arranging all these songs, and he's also co-writing on, on the original side with Justin. And uh, I am your mix engineer. Oh, there you go. Well, C.J., I wanted to, going to have to run here in a minute, but I wanted to remind everyone, you're going to be going out on the road uh, as Firehouse, most of the summer? Are you guys out on the road yet, or are you just, uh, is it going to be starting later this month? Oh, my gosh. Last week alone, 10 flights. Oh, dude. my. 10 flights. Uh, we were just in, on Wednesday, this past week, we were just in Monterey, Mexico, with Poison and Warrant, and played the arena there. Uh, mega show, mega crowd. It was amazing to get in front of the uh, you know fans in Mexico once again. Uh, so the answer is yes, we're on tour. Just got back uh, last night from a tour, uh, show that we did with Skid Row. Okay. Uh, out in Nebraska. Uh, we'll be in Lubbock, Texas in a few days, once again with Poison. And then it just goes on and on. If people really want to find out where we're going to be, and we only put up our confirmed dates, we have a lot more in the works right now. Uh, so keep checking back. They will pop up. That's at uh, firehousemusic.com. Yeah, and I just want to remind everyone in the Pittsburgh area, you guys are going to be in Altoona, which is oh probably an hour and a half, two-hour drive outside of the city of Pittsburgh. You're going to be playing at the uh, the Altoona Railroaders Museum uh, on the 24th of June. So uh, you'll be That's coming. Just to... us? Pardon me. That's just us. Um, on your side, it doesn't mention anyone else. I did not look to see if there were other people on the bill that night. Okay, we're also playing Clearfield, Pennsylvania, too. If this reaches anybody. Check our website for that. You know, you mentioned at the top of the show uh, that you did some work with local artists and things mm-hmm. like that. I actually uh, mixed something for uh, an extreme 
shredding guitarist from the Pittsburgh area. His name is Xander Demos. Okay. Are you familiar with him? No, but not. I'm going to certainly track him down. Oh, you will be. Let me tell you. Uh, he had me mix, test mix a song for him called Right Angles, and he loved it. And uh, he's going to have an album coming out uh, this year. They're tracking it right now, and it's going to be called Guitarcadia. This man is like, uh, I mean, he could open cases with the likes of Neil Zaza, Bill Leverty, and Chris Green, and, you know, all the guitar uh you name it, George Lynch, anybody. This guy is uh, extreme, and I, that's my next project after Liberty and Justice. I'll be moving on to uh, mix and, and co-produce that record. Awesome. And that's XanderDemos.com. Actually, I'm looking at it right now. So look forward to hearing that, and we'll have to get in touch with him and see about getting him on the show then. Yeah. Great. Well, CJ, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule uh, to come on the show. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Sure, no problem. Bye-bye. Scream your heart out and get ripped with White Snake. U.S. Tour 2011. Trip Total Media Amphitheater, August 16th. With special guest, Mr. Big. Tickets on sale now at all Ticketmaster outlets, Ticketmaster.com, or by calling 1-800-745-3000. The new album, Forevermore, available everywhere now. For more, see Whitesnake.com. By Drusky Entertainment and Pittsburgh Concert Group. All right, again, a special thanks to CJ Snare for joining us on the show. They will be in Altoona at the Railroaders Museum on June 24th. And now, coming up on the show, we've got a special band coming into Pittsburgh. They're going to be playing Altar Bar on June 16th, which is uh, coming up very, very soon. It's a band called Les Zeppelin. They are a female Led Zeppelin tribute band. Uh, we're going to be talking to Steph Payne from the band all about. Uh, kind of what you can expect when you go see them. Uh, and before we get into the interview with Steph, we're going to give you a taste uh, of some of their music. But I want to invite all of you to check out our website, ironcityrocks.com. Go to the concert section. You can find all kind of information about what's going on both locally, uh, out at Burgettstown, uh, some of the other venues in the western Pennsylvania area. Also, stop by our contest link. We are giving away a pair of tickets to see Motley Crue when they come through town with Poison and the New York Dolls. Also, got a pair of tickets to give away to see 311 Sublime on there as well. And in the very, very near future, we've got a couple more uh, tickets to be giving away. Also, you want to follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Iron City Rocks. Uh, just in the last couple weeks, we've given away uh, five different pair of tickets to see uh, some shows exclusively to our Facebook uh, followers. So I invite you to get on there and uh, join in on the fun. We are on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Iron City Rocks as well. So plenty of places to get in touch with us. And now I will get into the interview we did with Seth, Steph sorry, Payne of Led Zeppelin. But first, one of my all-time favorite Led Zeppelin tracks. Here's Communication Breakdown from Led Zeppelin 1. <laughs>
Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to the show from the band Les Zeppelin, Steph Payne. How are you doing today, Steph? Very well, thank you. It's very hot here in New York, but other than yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, we're headed to another 90-ish degree day here in the Pittsburgh market as well, so it's muggy as heck, and it looks like it's going to rain any minute. But um, you're going to be coming into Pittsburgh uh, on a tour date a week from today. You're going to be coming in on Thursday the 16th to play the Altar Bar. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of introduce Les Zeppelin to the the Pittsburgh scene. And could you just give us a little background on what Les Zeppelin is? What we are, yeah. It's a very deep uh, existential question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Take it in any direction you want. Oh, man. How long do you have? Okay. Well, uh, you know, there's... In, in doing it for the past seven years, because um, I started the band about seven years ago, uh, I've been kind of looking for a moniker, if you will, a way to sort of encapsulate exactly what it is. And the the best thing I could do was to maybe think of something called a she incarnation, because I think that in a certain sense, we are an incarnation of Red Zeppelin, so to speak, and we're all girls, you know. Um, And we sort of, um, it is a bit like a reincarnation, you know, where we we each have our own musical personalities, we've come together and we bring ourselves very heavily, um, individually to this music, and in the very same way that sort of Led Zeppelin did. So rather than, you know, as tribute bands do, where they sort of um, take the music and, and play it note for note most of the time and and even dress in a certain way so that they appear to be like the other band so that maybe if you squint a bit, you can think it's really them, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've escaped all that because luckily we're girls, so no one's really going to mistake us. Although Led Zeppelin did look a lot more like girls than boys most of the time. Yeah, I was going to say, if, if, your, <laughs> if your singer could get her hair just a hair wider and a hair frizzier, you'd have the song Remains the Same look down Absolutely. pretty well. <laughs> so it actually is kind of eerie in that sense because, you know, it just is what it is. But I think that what we do really is we reinterpret the music, you know. And, you know, of course we stay true to it. We're very serious about um, authenticity, we use all the same gear, we have the same sounds on, you know, uh, and so in that sense, we really do, um, respect what they've done in the deepest level. But I think that to do Led Zeppelin, what you really have to understand about them is that they were this entity that combusted, as it were, when they came together, four guys. And that whenever they played, things were a little different. They didn't know where they were going to go. There was this kind of extreme passion and emotion in the moment. And that's really what we do. You know, I think that's sort of the, it's a long-winded way, but the best way to describe it. Okay, so you're kind of channeling the energy and the creativity without necessarily ripping them off. And, and I, I don't know when the whole phenomenon of tribute bands kind of exploded, but bands went from being cover bands and playing a lot of different stuff to kind of honing in on, I think every town now has a high voltage that is the ACDC knockoff and a, <laughs> a, a couple of guys dressed like Kiss and things like that. But, uh, you know, there are very few that I think can can come to the level uh, of of really capturing the spirit of the band and also being broadly accepted enough to, to tour. I mean, you, you've been taking this show on the road for a while now. Uh, it kind of, to me, 
I would put you guys somewhere in the vein of, of like the uh, the Pink Floyd, uh, the Australian Pink Floyd, you know, where it's, it's almost as magical as seeing, you know, the original band, which is, is a, which is a wonderful thing. Now, how did you get to this? I mean, obviously, somewhere along the line, Jimmy Page uh, connected with you on a uh, influence level, but um, how did you start out as a musician? Yeah, he put a spell on me, I think. Yeah. Yes, he'll, he'll deny that. He'll deny that, but with his Alice Kirk. I'm putting it too. I'm working on it. <laughs> it's a little slow in responding, but it's, sure. it's out there. Um, how did this happen? That's that's yeah. It, it's sort of a, a. I'm a little dazed and confused by the whole thing. <laughs> um, I you know really I think what happened is uh, there is something a little mystical about it. I guess. You know, if if you really um, think about it, because it's not like Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin were the sort of the end, you know, the end all, be an end all, I guess that's the cliche, of my musical existence from the beginning. I mean, I had a lot of other uh, guitar heroes and types of music that I played as a kid and growing up, and certainly Zeppelin was in there in the mix, but mm-hmm. it really wasn't until later um, well after the demise of the band, I mean, um, that I really sort of discovered them. Um, right. I got, I got the, uh, the remastered box set, uh, probably in the late nineties. Okay. I was actually in a band that was all girls during that time period. And a lot of people would sort of come up to us and say, God, you guys are Zeppelin-esque. I mean, we sort of weren't. I guess in a way we were. We were more Jane's Addiction-like. But it was a very powerful band of four girls that were the same lineup. And so I became really interested in this sort of, um, you know, uh, genre, as it were. And I started really listening to Led Zeppelin. And I was just blown away. You know? It was like hearing something completely new in a way, Mm -hmm. even though I'd heard so much of this stuff. And as a, as a musician who had really gotten deep into just a lot of different musical styles, I mean, Jimmy's guitar playing and, and the, the mastery that he had in all sorts of different areas was just mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, as I listened to this stuff more and more and discovered albums I hadn't really ever listened to, like, you know, the later stuff, a lot of the later stuff, it really just sounded, honestly, better than most other things <laughs> that if, were around. If you're doing you this know? in the if you're doing this in the 1990s, like you said, I, I can't agree enough. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of people fell in love with Led Zeppelin in the 90s because they didn't like Jane's Addiction, quite frankly. Right. I mean, I like Jane's Addiction, but I, I just, you know. If, I, if I'm sitting and listening to Nirvana and I'm going, well, this is great. It's like kind of like a Beach Boys song. It's cool, but Beatles song. But look at how they're soft and then light, you know, dark. Mm-hmm. And then all of these ideas really, I think a lot of them came out of Zeppelin and mm-hmm. um, to listen to the real thing. And just the mastery, you know, was just, um, it just so blew my mind that I just became a little obsessed with it. And then I just really thought, I was really kind of just teasing myself and thinking, you know, if I had my fantasy, what would I do? And my fantasy would be to play in Led Zeppelin. And, of course, that wasn't going to happen, but it didn't mean I couldn't play Led Zeppelin. Sure. So I just thought, why not? And I'd already been in this one girl's band. It was the only girl band I'd ever been in, by the way. 
and it, and it was it was called One Nine Hundred Box. This band. Okay. And uh, I'm telling you, it was probably the most powerful band I'd ever been in. Even though I've been in tons of bands with many guys. No offense taken, but these girls, man, it, it was just we were raging. And uh, so I had no doubt that I could find girls to rage Led Zeppelin, you know. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of foolishly went out there and <laughs> tried to make this happen, and here I am. Yeah, I mean, I have to say the uh, the question that comes to my mind is, is Led Zeppelin got kind of, is it in stone that it's going to be an, an all-female outfit? I mean, or is that just kind of the personnel that you, you seem to get? I mean... Is it is it a conscious decision or or will it be impossible for a, a man to ever play in the band? I guess is a good question. Uh, yes, it, it, well, <laughs> we could go so many places with this. Uh, we no, it was a conscious decision. Okay. We we did have one man play in the band for one gig because my drummer broke her ankle, and we had Frankie Benali from Quiet Riot come and do a gig with us. Hey, there you go. <laughs> So thrilled, and you know Frankie's hair is practically to his waist. You know, yeah. Frankie, you know, was a good choice. He could almost, you know, Frankie's the best. You know, mm-hmm. but he can, he's of course a big Zep head. But sure. um, so it was really great to play with him. But no, I, you know, the whole thing really came together in this sort of little burst of um, idea ness, as it were. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the all girl thing was just it, it's it's inextricably tied in because I just think that what really began to happen and you know I realized it at first that it was a it was a good idea you know because first of all I didn't know any bands like this that did this and there are no girl bands that play like this so I thought well this would be at least be novel and um be something different that you know we could step outside of this sometimes and uh, there's a little bit of a stigma sometimes when people look at bands like this, you know, they or tribute bands, as it were. And I really was, I, I'm, I'm really just had a purely musical take on this, so I wanted to get outside of that too. But I think that what really began to happen quickly is that I realized the all-girl angle, as it were, mm-hmm. ran much deeper than I had even realized in terms of what of the affect, you know. Sure. I mean, what happens when you get four women who play like that, you know? Because, you know, let's be frank. We're talking about four of the greatest musicians in rock when we're talking about Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Not easy. Uh, I'm not saying this is easy. I mean, I, I rehearsed the first band for a good six to eight months before I let anyone on stage. I mean, I, you know, because it's a very, you know, this is a responsible thing. You've got to be responsible, especially if you're going to be all girls and go out there, because no one believes you can do it. Yeah. You know, there is a cynicism. So, I mean, I think that there was this sort of um, challenge, but what really began to happen is that it's not only because of the unusualness of having girls play this music, but the fact that Led Zeppelin was so forcefully male, or perceived as such anyway, in in their... Music and in their um, image and in their sexual power, you know, sure. on stage, when you replace them with women and you create the same sexual, powerful um, aura, you know, atmosphere, it's really interesting what happens. 
Yeah, you are kind of <laughs> you're kind of doing it in a similar way, but completely flipping the equation, and it, it, that right. is an excellent point. It kind of leads me t- to a question I had: uh, the album cover of Led Zeppelin once. Yeah. Um, <laughs> w- was that someone in the band's idea? Well, you know, I, I we sort of had this idea I kind of thought that this is just so obvious you know I mean it was obvious to them 40 mm-hmm. years ago in a certain way I'm sure <laughs> um, but uh, I we just thought well we've got to find some way to use this and push the envelope a little bit you know mm-hmm. and so we had all sorts of drawings and sketches and things and some of them were ruder than others you know yeah but the idea of this zeppelin exploding was it's just so obviously sexual. And this um, album design, our designer, her name is Tuke, and um, uh, she she just, I don't know what, man, it was like, it was like genius. We discussed it, we, we had some sketches, and then she just went to work. And I'll, I'll never forget this. She, she emailed me, what do you think of this? It was her first go at it. And it came up on my iPhone and I was walking down this, you know, Broadway in Soho or something, and I nearly fell to the floor. I mean, I screamed because it was just so perfect. Yeah. It was so subtle, so perfect. I just, I, I just thought it was the greatest thing. So, the, the subtlety yeah. actually is dead on because I looked at it the first time and I'm like, okay, they just used damn near the same album cover. Right. And then, and then I looked at it. <laughs> and I looked at it some more, and it was, something's different here. And, and I don't want to ruin it for people who haven't seen it yet. Um, but I invite any of you to just Google Les Zeppelin and look at the album cover. Uh, it's perfect. And that does leave you, uh, for future albums to maybe use the infamous shark, uh, <laughs> on an album cover. Um, yeah. now, have you had any feedback from the, the Led Zeppelin camp at all? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's really been kind of nice. I mean, um, we know that they're all, they all know about us and have known about us for a while, and, and uh, they all are very supportive of the group, I mean, as far as I know. And, mm-hmm. and told. I, I actually have not sort of come across Robert Plant directly, but through his, to some people on his crew, tech guys who know about their mutual friends, we've been told he sends his best and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy is a – we have a very close mutual friend, and so Jimmy has sort of been – following us for a while, you know, mm-hmm. and has heard the records and it's just been so, you know, is is really supportive of the group. And uh, I think he really gets a kick out of it, you know. He's always asking about it and, and right. stuff like that. And it's just a matter of time, I hope, before we actually find ourselves on stage with him, hint, hint. But yeah. um, but he's really been great. And, um, and I actually did meet John Paul Jones. Oh, okay. I met him when I went. I was lucky enough to go to the O2 reunion. Wow. Yeah, in London, which really was the first time I'd seen, you know, Red Zeppelin, if, you know, if you want to call it that, with John Conn. But yeah. And so it was great. And I met him after the show. I was introduced to him at a party. And it was just an amazing moment because I was, you know. Yeah. There he was, and I was so speechless almost and then he just took my hand and went oh Led Zeppelin I'm dying to see you girls and blah 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 when are you playing I mean I, I just nearly fell yeah. over because Breathe, yes. he was talking about my band and I just 
couldn't believe it, but it's such an honor. Yeah, so. yeah. and th- there's a guy who just does not get the credit that he deserves. I mean, when, when people think of Led Zeppelin, he kind of comes forth in the pecking order of, uh, of I think, how people view them, you know. And it's a shame because he's such a, you know, a unique musician. Now, uh, and for those of people out there who might think, okay, this is just uh, a live thing, obviously you have the album, uh, and you guys aren't working with slouches. This isn't, you know, a, kind of a, a Pro Tools in your basement thing. You guys have worked with Eddie Kramer. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, what you guys have done in the studio? Yeah, well, the first album we did, we did, we we took on Eddie Kramer, you know, who actually, um, it, that was kind of a funny thing because I always used to joke early on, oh, yeah, we'll make a record, we'll call up Eddie Kramer, you know. Sure, like, yeah. You know, why not? You think big. And then when we play Madison Square Garden, he can introduce us, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, and so when we decided to make that first album, you know, this is one of, I don't know if it's a, if it's a good or bad part of my personality, but I just kind of said, well, let's just ask Eddie Kramer and see what happens. And sure enough, he was, the next thing I know, I am answering the phone and it's Eddie Kramer, you know. Yeah. Hello. You know, yeah. so I mean... It really was kind of an interesting, well, an amazing journey to just work with him on the first record, which, of course, we did do very seriously in top studios. We recorded mm-hmm. basic tracks with Electric Lady and, you know, which he built for Hendrix. And, you know, sure. You're, the whole thing was just so iconic. Yeah. You know, there was one point as a guitar player when I just, I, I couldn't believe really what I was doing. It was the day I had to go play guitar solos, you know, and I did all of them in one day. Yeah, you're standing and, uh, standing in the church that Hendrix built and playing guitar. Yeah, yeah. that listening to Hendrix's solos yeah. and Hendrix's solos and everyone else, and I just I think I just cried because I just thought, what am I? I must be out of my mind, you know? Mm-hmm. What am I doing? I'm going to go play Jimmy solos in front of this guy, you know? Yeah, it was really. It was good not to think about it too much. Anyway, it worked out in the end, but um. Mm-hmm. But this, so that that was interesting, and that, and that first record was kind of a a sampler, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like one song from each of the first records plus two original tracks, which in a way I think, our Eddie was very into that. He really liked uh, the idea, and I brought in one song that he just kind of flipped out over, just this this acoustic-y thing called Winter Sun. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's going on the record. And, you know, once we had that, it, it was nice to do that. I think that in a way that sort of remains as my favorite part of that record. Yeah, and that's that's um, good to kind of step out yeah. and show that you're, you're again more than just a tribute band is is to be able to take that step and create create the music, which is you know right. that's a lot. Right. Yeah, we're sort of moving a little in that direction too, I think. Mm-hmm. But as we get back to the the second record, which we just finished, um, that was like a whole other level. I think we just really, really got in deep. We went back to the beginning and we did we decided to do Led Zeppelin's first record mm-hmm. and do it from start to finish and do it in the most authentic way. Like, you know, to really, really get underneath what you think you're hearing and use the same equipment. We use all vintage equipment. We had a world-class analog studio called Pi Studios, which is owned and run by Perry Margaleff, who, you know, has worked a lot with some of these he's worked with Jimmy Page, he's worked with um um Joe, Joe Perry. Joe Perry, yes, and uh oh my God, the name is eluding me. 
anyway, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll think of it later in a second. But anyway, he, he really, uh, you know, knows this music so well, this era music, and he's got a lot of the gear, you know. Mm-hmm. And what we didn't have, we got, you know. And then William Whitman, too. I mean, he was a, a house producer, I think, at, um, it was, uh, one of the big record companies, um, it was either ACTO or Columbia or something, but he's worked with a million people and Cindy Lauper and all sorts of things. And so between us, we just um, we just really attacked this record and we're very, very uh, just precise about getting inside the feel and the sounds of it. And it was really an extraordinary thing because um, – when you really take it to that level, which I think is almost, you know, I don't think anyone's done it this obsessively. Mm-hmm. With listening to guitar sounds and to drum sounds and the sound of, a, of you know, uh, the, the specific rates of reverb and how it's done and where does that, how does that happen and how does, how does that slide on this pedal steel go? It, it just opens up a whole other layer to this music. Mm-hmm. And you start hearing things that you never, you know, I've been playing this music seven years and I've never heard some of the things I started hearing. I realized how much I didn't really know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just scary. Yeah, I mean, there's... Amazing experience. I'm very proud of the record. I think I, I think everyone in the band just rose to this unbelievable level. And um, there were times when we were recording without the vocal yet because Shannon, you know, doesn't... If you put Shannon's vocal on it, it's obviously not... Robert Plant, which is the beauty of it. It's, mm-hmm. It then has its own twist. But there were times when the tracks alone, you couldn't tell the difference between yeah. the two records. Yeah, which which says wow. an immeasurable amount about the quality of the music. Now, if, if folks want to pick up the album, what is the where can they find it? Um, they can really get it anywhere. I think. I mean, it's online. It's at Amazon. There's there's a CD. We released it on vinyl, so they can get a vinyl copy, which uh. is recommend because I'll have a record here, you know. And uh and also they can download it, iTunes and if they go to our website I throw a link there. Okay, and your le- your website is L E Z and then Zeppelin dot com, correct? Right. Les cool. Zeppelin it's one phrase. Instead of the D it's just you put another Z in there. Right. So it's Z. <laughs> so you can kind of say it in one foul swoop, Le Zeppelin. It's almost like yeah. a, a French name. Um live um are are we going to be expecting kind of the whole first album, or um, you guys kind of take a, a journey through the whole Zeppelin catalog, and will we hear those originals? Um, we do sometimes play the originals. We have also played albums start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let Zeppelin one is sort of from start to finish is. Uh, per- personally, I absolutely love it. I find it to be one of the most exhilarating shows you can do. But I think it's very, um, it's very heavy. Uh, you need to be sort of very into Zeppelin maybe to totally dig that because it slows down very fast. You know, it's yeah. not like typical. You know, you've got, um, you've got the opening number. You know, good times, bad times, which hits you over the head. But then you go into Babe, and then you go into all this blues stuff, and so you. You know, so live sometimes it's not the most uh, ideal way to build a set or build an audience, but we have done it and love it. I think this time we'll probably dig into a lot of different 
stuff, and we like playing some deep tracks. And, of course, there are always those things that they're just so classic that we usually throw a few of those things in. Yeah, two, so. two, two tracks I've wondered. Have you guys um, tackled Warren and Taryn? Yep. How does that go over live? I've always been curious because I was a little too young to remember Zeppelin live and love the song Wearing and Tearing. That's wild that you should pick that up. That one is so much fun because that's just like a rockabilly romp through, you know, yeah. at, at, at high speed. We actually try to play it even faster. <laughs> oh, okay. Got some because it's just really, we get so wild and wide-eyed and we're like screaming at each other playing this thing. But, but yeah, no, we love that one. Yeah. And audiences like it, too, because it's just, you know, it's very sort of based on that old-fashioned, mm-hmm. you know, country lick sort of stuff, you know. And, and the other the other song that I point to is maybe my personal favorite guitar solo of all time, Do You Tackle Heartbreaker? Ha, 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 ha. Heartbreaker. Yeah, we tackle it all right. Sometimes it tackles us. <laughs> yeah, that solo, you know, it's just such an immense piece of work. And you know, a lot of people, I think, kind of point to it. I've seen it even listed as the worst guitar solo in, in some, like, readers' polls and things like that. To me, it's such an explosion of emotion and music and stuff. I, I absolutely love that solo. Well, that's what Jimmy is, you see. I mean, I, I think that that says it very well. Jimmy, it that's how he plays. I mean... To get him, you really have to hone in on that explosiveness of what he does. He just, it, it, it is, it's like this combustion, it's all built up, and then there's this sort of, you know, sexual train coming down the track, kind of like, you know. Yeah. And, and Heartbreak is a very good example of that. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, to t- for example, to tackle something like Heartbreaker. It became pretty clear to me early on that to just de- decipher every little tiny thing he does in that solo. I mean, you could look. I've done it. I've played it pretty much note for note. You can, you can do it, but it's it, it almost defeats the purpose because it's just it's going to be really hard to to sound like he sounds if yeah. you're playing something that's known. I mean, the reason Jimmy sounds like that on that solo is because he just burst out. And and this thing came out, and there it was, and it has this quality to it. And in order to capture that quality, I truly believe you have to burst out and play something that maybe you've never played. Yeah, it's being good enough. <laughs> yeah, that you, you know, kind of, you know, it's very ballsy. You have to be good enough to say, well, I can play something like Jimmy would play, you know. But mm-hmm. I think you have to take that leap, otherwise, that's where the fun is, you know. That's yeah. why you work so. Yeah, so step one, get good enough. Step two, explode on my own. Yes. Yeah, I, 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 I've, I've tried. I sat with the transcription of that solo, and I get to, you know, just a few measures in. I'm like, I'm not worthy of this. You know, this is just, uh, you know. You uh, are just, well, you know, it, it, it really is a funny thing. I mean, I, it, there was an interesting um, revelation that I had Um uh, when I actually, it's funny, it was, it was my first Jimmy. I always joke about I had two loves of my life, and Jimi Hendrix was one and Jimmy Page is the other, you know. And I was studying Hendrix for a long time as well, and I actually had, uh, I was very into it, and I had steeled myself away to this house in the Berkshires that my parents had, um, and I just went up there by myself for about three or four days with the idea being I'm not leaving the house except to get food, and all I'm going to do is study Jimi Hendrix 
and his guitar solos, and I'm just going to listen to them. I did it at night. I mean, I did it from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep for like three or four days straight. And I figured this will change my playing. And, it, you know, it did. But there was one point during the three, third day or something, <laughs> this obsessiveness, that I'm standing in the middle of the living room with this guitar strapped to me, and I'm watching Jimmy at Rainbow Bridge. Mm-hmm. I'm watching this video of him. And I'm just, you know, just watching him. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, like, what is it? about this guy. Like, I, you know, I'm playing the stuff, and it's close. I mean, I'm playing the notes, and it sort of sounds like him, but it's just not, what is it about that guy's sound and this? And I was watching him, and suddenly, I just started imitating him, the way he moved his body against the guitar, you know? Mm -hmm. And the way he was just, his entire being was wrapped up in this guitar. There was no mind at all. It was as if the guitar were just another extremity. And the whole thing, the whole body, his hands, his hips, everything, was moving with this thing. He was banging it against his hips. And I just started doing what he was doing while playing this song, mm-hmm. which I had studied, and so I knew at this point well enough. And suddenly, that was it. That was the sound. I started to sound like him. And I was just, it, it, and it was like this revelation. I was like, oh, my God. It's a completely physical, mindless thing. You've got to be in it, inside it, with your entire essence. Yeah. And I, the very same idea, you know, with Jimmy just playing this explosive thing. It's just him, you know? And you're not yeah. going to sound like it unless you're just you, I guess. Yeah, it's, you've almost got to channel that energy as opposed to, you know, playing the pentatonic scale. You know, right. you're, you're, you're certainly... Uh, you hit the nail right on the head on, on probably two of the most emotional players, you know, of all time, quite frankly. I mean, two guys that, yep. you know, you can imitate, but unless you're, you know, trying to release what they were releasing with that music, you know, you're not going to accomplish it. You know, it's like it's like trying to, to fake your way through a David Gilmore solo by just, you know, you know you, you've got to experience it almost to do it right. So... Yeah, yeah, amen. So maybe we can look forward down the road to you doing a uh, Jimi Hendrix uh, type project. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, another lifetime, maybe. I, I actually used to do that a bit. I used to play Hendrix stuff, and uh, yeah, you don't want to hear about all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's something I'd like to see. I have to admit, yeah. that's, that's not one that, that many people try to tackle. I mean, because you. Well, yeah. I don't know, balls from wild. It's ridiculous, really. Sure. Me. Steph, I, I want to thank you. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to seeing you guys on the 16th. That's again next Thursday. Come in into Altar Bar, which is, if you're not familiar, is a converted church into a nightclub. So, uh, what promises to be a religious experience, to say the least. We shall bring it. Yes, we love Altar Bar. It really is very holy, and uh, and we intend to live up to the the church that it's in so yeah. please come down we, we love playing Pittsburgh we've been we've been uh, there several for several years already you know? okay. Played, okay. played for about four years uh, in, in the altar bar the last couple of years and two places before that so it's a great rock and roll town yeah maybe we could squeeze houses of the holy into the set yeah right that's a request <laughs> that, that is my favorite Zeppelin song House of the Holy I have to admit but, all right, Seth, I want to thank you very much. You have a good show. Thank you.
to keep it up like this, we love the community. 